Welcome to the Tomball Bible Church Podcast. We exist to glorify Jesus Christ by making mature disciples to reach the nations. To find out more, visit us online at tomballbible.church. We'll turn in your Bibles, inviting you to Romans 15, the end of the chapter. At the end of this week, we're going to be one chapter away. You never thought you'd make it, but here you are. We're going to be Romans 15, 22, 22 through the end, in verse 33. And this is Paul's missionary prayer letter that's focused around the will of God. I used to be on staff with the Navigators, a uh, parachurch kind of missions agency doing it at Texas A&M. And six times a year, what we had to do was we had to get together a letter and mail it out to everybody who was supporting us in the ministry. As a, as a way of update, a way of prayer requests, a way to have people just know what's going on, and also our forecasting for future ministry plans. And what we're going to be seeing this morning is essentially Paul's version of that. He's going to give out his update, what's been going on in the ministry, what he plans to be doing, and he's also going to list some prayer requests as to how he would like to be prayed for and what he's trying to do. And what we have to come to the conclusion of when we study a passage like this is that this is not filler words. Put yourself in the first century with the Apostle Paul and the church at Rome. He's writing down on expensive paper. This is not easy to do. It's not an email that he did. Expensive paper, a document that's going to be read in front of the entire church. Now, if that were you, would you just kind of throw some fluff in there? I mean, this is not a a high school writing assignment where you had to just hit a certain amount of words for a word count to make it get full credit. These These are all important words. So this has something for us because we believe 2 Timothy 3.16 that all scripture is inspired and profitable for us. So we're going to profit from this morning with the Holy Spirit inspired in the hands of Paul that even through the prayer requests of his apostles, God is teaching us. So Paul is going to give us a handful of updates and three prayer requests all centered around and hovering over the will of God. That's the overarching theme of the passage. So we're going to see his pioneering missions in verses 22 through 24 and his financial support delivery plans in 25 through 27, and then his assurance in the rightfulness of his actions in 28 through 29, and then 30 through 33, we're going to see his prayer requests listed out for the church at Rome. So follow me. Look at verse 22. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. Well, what, what is the reason? We just pick it up right there. We got no clue, but we're luckily, providentially, we've already gone through that passage, 20 and 21, where it says, this is why I am not coming to you because it's my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on another someone else's foundation. He's a missionary on the pioneer. That's the reason he's been hindered from coming to them. His ministry calling was primarily to preach the gospel continually where Christ was not known where Jesus' name was not present. He was a pioneer, a frontiersman for the gospel. Visiting an established and healthy church like the one at Rome was was a good thing, but not part of his primary calling. So therefore, he was prevented and hindered from coming to that. But we know that Paul loved these people nevertheless, because we sort of read that in chapter 1, verse 9 through 11. For God is my witness, whom I serve in my spirit and the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you, always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you for I long to see you 
He has a, a true and genuine, deep yearning to be with them. He wants to be present with them. That's very clear to us just from Romans chapter 1. He wants to spend meaningful time with them. This is not a, something he's ambivalent about or just has no opinion on. He longs to be there. But nevertheless, his longing for fellowship does not override his longing to obey God. Because he's been hindered from going. Christian maturity looks like doing what you ought, not doing what you want. Paul could have gone if he wanted but he was one striving to do what he ought to do. Paul's primary guide in life and how he functions was not his feelings. It was the unwavering will of God. He was only going to come to them if it was the will of God. So Paul can honestly say that he had been hindered, he had been prevented or thwarted from doing what he longed to do. He longed to be with them. But because he had a higher authority than his own gut, he didn't do it. He submitted to the will of God. God's will and God's word overrides his will and his word as a life pattern. However, something has changed in his situation currently. Look at verse 23. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you. So now the apostle can say, hey, I've worked myself out of a job here. Can you feel the impact of that? That statement, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions. What was his primary work? Proclaiming Christ where he'd never been proclaimed before. And Paul says, I've worked myself out of a job. He's so fervent in evangelism, he can honestly say, there is no, nobody has an excuse here anymore. No people group has an excuse here anymore of not knowing the name of Christ. He's been proclaimed everywhere in these regions. <laughs> can you imagine saying that on the biblical record? about yourself, that you are, you are so confident. He can say, honestly, before God, no one will have an excuse about not knowing the name of Christ. Churches have been planted. People groups have been given the gospel. He can honestly say that. Paul did that. See, but now we're expecting the Hollywood ending. The returning hero comes home. He's done all of his hard work, and now he can retire to a life of luxurious metropolitan lifestyle in the city of Rome and just have a hero's welcome by all his adoring fans. He's done his bit for God, and now he can do what he wants to do, right? Well, no, look at verse 24. I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. He says, since I have longed for many years to come to you, you guys will make a blessed pit stop for me. That's what he said. You guys are going to be the most wonderfully sanctified buckies I could ever come across. I'm just going to stop there, get refueled, get excited, fellowship, and then I'm going to keep going to Spain. Even though he longs to be with them, and he's made it very clear he has a genuine love for them, I'm going to be there with you, but only for a little while. My eyes are on Spain. And Spain in the first century world means the end of the globe. Around the Mediterranean world, Spain is as far west as you can go. And, that's, and then we don't go further than that until 1492, right? So that means he's saying, I, I'm going to stop with you for a little while, and then I'm going to go to the uttermost reaches of the planet. That's where I'm headed. I mean, that's, that's an unbelievable reality. Spain is where we, we, scholars believe and Bible study theologians believe that's where Tarshish is, where Jonah tries to go in Jonah 1-3, where Jonah's trying to get as far away from God as he possibly can. 
And, and Paul says, I'm going there. That's where I'm going with the gospel. And you guys will be helping me on the way there. See, it would have been easy. It's easy for a, a, the missionary hero who comes home to just be the, be the resident spiritual guru and just tell war stories for the rest of his life about what the good old days were like. And I'm sure the church at Rome would have been more than content to have Paul stay there and just be that resident guru and let him wind down his days in the comfort of an easy chair telling stories and, and how great it was back in the good old days. But gospel ministry is never advanced by recounting the good old days. Gospel ministry cannot subsist on the fumes of yesterday. And Paul knows that. He says in Philippians 3, 13 through 14, Brothers, I do not consider that I made it on my own, that I have made it on my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I'm not done. Until I'm dead, I'm not done. He says the same thing to Timothy, his protege in 2 Timothy 4, 5. As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. And a fulfilled ministry looks like dying with your boots on. Paul will go on to say in 2 Timothy for Paul wasn't looking to gain a comfortable life here on earth. In fact, Paul was convinced that the only gain you could have was by dying. That's what he says in Philippians 1.21 anyways. That's where the only gain is, is in dying. Here is to be Christ, is to work. Here is ministry. Living life on earth is endless labor for the kingdom of God. It is to be like Christ. Paul was going to finish his race at a dead sprint. He was not trying to just sprint out of the gate and get far enough ahead of the pack so that he could jog his way to the finish line. That wasn't his mindset at all. His plan was to collapse through the gates of splendor, bloody, sweaty, broken, out of breath, and gasping for air. That was Paul's mindset. That was what would glorify God, not coasting in comfort. So Paul says, I'm laying it all out there. I am gonna, I'm gonna, I'd love to see you guys, and I will come see you but only as a part of my greater mission to get to Spain. But he has even more to do. In verses 25 through 27, he's going to be supporting the saints. Everything Paul does is on purpose. He doesn't waste any actions. He's not just kind of goofing around on any, any point. He lives intentionally for the Lord, and nothing is beneath him. We'll see that here in these verses. His brother made it his ambition to present everyone mature and complete in Christ, lacking in nothing, and he was going to do whatever it would take to meet those ends, whatever it would take. And sometimes it involved seemingly menial tasks. Look at verses 25 through 26. He writes, at present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem. So I'm not even coming to you guys first. I'm going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. You just think, Paul, could you have gotten somebody else to do that? What makes you have to be the delivery boy? I mean, you're, you're the top dog. You're, you're the, the smartest guy. You're the most seasoned evangelist and missionary and church planner and pastor and theologian. Somebody else can be the money runner. Why are you going to go and do this? Nothing was beneath Paul that would contribute to the kingdom of God. And he said so in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19. He said, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all 
that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Paul, Paul said, I'll, I'll do whatever it takes. Whatever it takes to see people from, come from death to life, from darkness to light, I'll do anything. Whatever it takes for that to happen, for the sake of the gospel. And, and he's willing to take this tribute, this money of support from the Gentile churches in North and South uh, Greece across the Mediterranean Sea to Jerusalem. He's willing to do that. And what we have now, we have this marvelous interweaving of our Bibles because this is spoken of in Acts. Paul's talking about it in letter form, but we can see it in narrative form in the book of Acts. This happens on his third and final missionary journey that he's going to go, the road to Rome would go through Jerusalem, which is kind of backwards. But nevertheless, that's what he set out to do because he was led by the Holy Spirit. Acts 19, 21. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. So we see it right there in live stream Luke with him, or at least getting firsthand report from him, that that's what his plan was. And we know from the rest of the book of Acts, Paul does indeed make it to Rome, but not in the way that he wanted. He makes it there as a prisoner. He's locked in chains when he makes it there, but he does get there, but he spends the rest of the book of Acts dealing with legal battles and being passed around from despot to despot and having to explain to them what his plight has been. But do you notice here what's going on in, in these verses in Romans 25 and 26? The Gentile churches are sending money, sending support to the Jerusalem church. These are cities that Paul has been to, like Thessalonica, Corinth, Athens, Berea, Philippi. These are, these are churches that have been planted by Paul. But Jerusalem is where the gospel f- sprung forth to the whole world. And now these churches are sending them help? What's going on? What, 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 what could be happening in this moment? They're sending, Jerusalem sent missionaries and church planters to Achaia and Macedonia. And, but now it looks like it's reversed. Now they're having to send help the other way. Well, apparently, oppression from the Judaizers, those who are rejecting Christ, living that, the Jewish lifestyle in, the, in a warped perspective of the law, were oppressing so hard the church in Jerusalem, meaning the Christians in Jerusalem, that they couldn't even support their own poor. And on top of that, there had been a couple of years of famine in Israel, so they don't have any food. So the church of Jerusalem, which launched this whole missionary campaign under the, the auspices of God, is being supported by the younger churches. The younger churches are turning around and helping the established church. Can that happen? Let me ask you this. How much longer do you think it's going to be before other churches in other countries are sending missionaries to the United States? I mean, we're already sending missionaries to Europe, are we not? Scotland, technically, right now, is an unreached people group because less than 2% of them identify as evangelical Christians. And Scotland used to be the most Christian nation in the world, at least in the 1800s, if not from the 16 to the 1800s. 
And we're sending missionaries to European cities right now that have books of the Bible named after them. We send missionaries to Corinth. We send missionaries to Rome. We send missionaries to Thessalonica and to Ephesus. So what makes us think that that could never happen to us? Because right now, the New England states are also technically classified, according to missiologists, as an unreached people group because less than 2% of the population identifies as evangelical Christians. I mean, there could be a day coming when missions agencies are no longer talking about the 1040 window or sub-Saharan Africa or Southeast Asia, that they're just talking about the continental U.S., that that's the big need. That's where we need to be sending the gospel to. And when that day comes, or if that day ever comes, heaven forbid, other churches in other countries would have a great commission obligation to send missionaries here and to send support for the work that is already going on here. And it should be eager when they do it, not begrudging, like the model given here. Verse 27, for they were pleased to do it. These fledgling churches were excited to send their money to Jerusalem to help the brothers and sisters there. They would not have known Christ were it not for the Jerusalem church sending Paul and sending other missionaries to them so they enjoy respond with that. And Paul assumes that to be normal Christian behavior. He doesn't really even give it a second thought or another comment. He just says it pleased them to do that. Of course it did. Paul's like, well, why wouldn't they do that? This is, in a, this is, this is what's happening in a macro sense, church to church across oceans. What we're commanded to do in a micro sense, person to person within the church, that we take care of each other. Galatians 6.10, so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially those who are of the household of faith. First John three seventeen. But if anyone has the world's good and sees his brother, Christian, brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? And then James two fifteen through 16, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm to be filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? The New Testament assumes that we as individual Christians in our own context meet each other's needs and take care and support one another. So of course that would happen in a macro sense from church to church across, across an ocean. What, what the New Testament would be direly concerned about is if those Gentile churches in Macedonia and Achaia, which is really just north and south Greece, if they were not compelled in love to support their brothers in Jerusalem. New Testament has heavy words for that. First John 3, 14 through 15. We know, here's how we know, we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death, spiritual death. Everyone who hates his brother, brother in Christ meaning, is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Of course, these Gentile churches were willing to support the churches at Jerusalem. I mean, they're, they're Christians. That's what you do. As a true Christian, you're incapable of hating other brothers and sisters in Christ. According to John, in 1 John, that's how portion of how we know and can be confident that we are, in fact, saved. So Paul just is treating this as if it's normal and nonchalant, because it is, according to real Christians. But he goes on in verse 27, verse B, or uh, letter B. 
And indeed, they owe it to them. They were pleased to do it, and they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. Paul says these Gentile churches owe the Jerusalem church. When was the last time you thought about yourself as having obligations to other Christians? What do you owe other Christians? Well, we know from Romans 13, verse 8, that we owe each other love from a pure heart. We know that. But this is support. They owed it to them. He presumes his readers will easily understand this. He says this almost offhandedly, just kind of nonchalantly mentions this. They owe it to them. And we know that, that this expands even bigger in the first century from Gentile to Jew, that there was, there was racial stuff going on here, that, that that needed to be addressed. This particular debt between Gentiles and Jews, Paul spent three chapters explaining that. Remember that, 9, 10, and 11? The auspices of God's sovereignty uses the example of Gentiles and Jewish relationships, and particularly in chapter 11, that we as Gentiles are the wild olive branches grafted in among the cultivated tree in the garden, that that's what Israel is, that's what the Jewish people are, so we don't have arrogance toward them, we have humility, Romans eleven eighteen. do not be arrogant towards the branches, the, the cultivated ones. If you are arrogant, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root supports you. So of course... This church, those churches in Macedonia and Achaia, they could not wait to help out their sister church in Jerusalem. They couldn't wait. And Paul's confident in his obedience through all of this. His plans, when he's going to go and what he's going to do, he's confident in his obedience. And he outlines that for us in verses 28 and 29. He says, "When therefore I completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. So he says, when I've dropped the money off in Jerusalem and I've ministered to those saints that are there, that's when I'm going to head out for Spain. That's when I'll kind of get going and, and make a pit stop in Rome and come and see you guys. He knows he's called to preach the gospel on, on the frontier. He loves the Romans, but he's locked in on that, that cutting edge of where, where the front lines of ministry. That's what he's looking forward to. And, and what we know, though, because we have a full Bible, that God is sovereign even over the calls that he issues on people's lives. Paul never makes it to Spain, at least not without any kind of confidence. We, have, we, can't, we can't find it in the scriptures, and history is waffling on it. It's easier to assume that he never made it there. But that was what his goal was, and, th- and that's how we should all die. We should all die with a pile of undone gospel initiatives in our lives. I was planning to do this, 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 and this for the kingdom of God, but wouldn't you know it, I died before I got to him. But we shouldn't die as Christians metaphorically lounging in a chair, sipping iced tea, just waiting to get called home. Paul's dying, and he has a list of things that he was going to do and he wanted to do for the glory and for the kingdom of God, and he never got to it because God called him home first. That's an example to us all. We should all die like that. In verse 29, I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. It's that mindset that allows Paul to be able to say this, that mindset of I'm going to do this for the will of God, for the glory of God, so that I know, I'll be able to know that when I come to you, it's in the blessing of Christ. When I come to you, it will be blessable by Christ. He's doing everything he can to be as obedient as possible to the will of God. And he's never going to veer from that. And it's because of, this, because of this dedication to the submission 
of his own personal submission to the will of God that Paul can know with full assurance that when he comes to Rome, it will not be in sin and it will not be because he's a master of his own ship. Because God has been directing him. He will be smack in the middle of God's will. When was the last time you were able to say that about a decision you were making? I know I am taking this job in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I know that I am buying this house in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I know that I am raising my kids this way in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. And how I'm speaking to and treating others is in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. And I know that. That that convicts me. Verse 29 is convicting to me. I make decisions all the time and never once consider, is this what God would do? Is this what the scriptures would lead me to do? Paul must convict us in that way, and he can feel secure in that. How secure must Paul have felt in that place to know that Jesus Christ can fully bless your decision, that you could confidently walk into any decision or any battle if you know your feet are firmly planted on the will of God. And that's how we must be structuring our lives. And it's not unique to Paul. David does this in 2 Samuel. He lines this out. David, as, as a, a man of great war, a man who understood battle and understood fighting and the dynamics of all of that, when he becomes king in 2 Samuel 5, this is what happens, his first big battle against the Philistines, 2 Samuel 5, verse 17. When the Philistines heard that David, David had anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. But David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said, go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. Instead of just going out there and the wisdom and the knowledge that he had accrued by being a seasoned soldier, he says, God, should I go out there to him and face him? And God says, go. But then the Philistines come and attack again. After he beats him back this one time, verse 22 of the same chapter, and the Philistines came up yet again and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And when David inquired of the Lord, he said, you shall not go up, go around to their rear and come against them opposite the balsam trees. Exact same scenario. So good on David for asking for God's leadership and the first one. But when they come up and they spread out again in the same valley in the same way, you should just run the play that God gave you earlier, right? No, David comes again at this decision point and says, God, what should I do? He says, don't, don't go up like you did last time. Go around the back. That's how I'm going to give you victory. What humility that he models for us, just like Paul. That David and Paul were submitted to the will of God above all else. Their desire to serve God trumped everything. And so must we be that way. And what we have over and against what David and Paul had is we have a completed Bible. We have the whole book. They didn't have that. We don't believe for a second that God's will is hidden from you. It is revealed on the pages of the scriptures and black ink on white paper or black screen stuff on a white background screen stuff. It's there and it's given away free of charge in the Bible, but it will require concerted effort on your part to pull it out. It won't cost you a dime, but it will cost you your time. You like that? I'm thinking about sending it to Lifeway. I made that up this week. Put it on a Christian bumper sticker. But it will cost us our time 
to find the will of God in the scriptures. It is there for us free of charge. And in verse 30, he begins this prayer, prayer request list. We've got to the end of the missionary letter. He's told you how things are going, what he's planning on doing, and then he's going to list out how you can be praying for him. Verse 30, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. Let's not miss how he asks for prayer. Strive, appeal. That word appeal is the Greek word parakaleo, and we've already seen it once. We saw it in Romans 12, verse 1. It's the same word that Paul used when he was calling all Christians to grow and pursue maturity as living and holy and acceptable sacrifices to God. It's an urging. It's a strong exhortation. I'm appealing to you to strive in prayer. Strive is the Greek word sun agonizomai, where we get the word agony from agonizomai. It, it, it's, it's a striving. It's a, but this, with the sun uh, prefix on it, it and connotes teamwork. It's an athletic idea of striving towards a common goal with others. Straining, reaching, fighting, scrapping alongside your teammates for a, against a common opponent. Paul's not asking you for half-hearted prayer, asking the Roman church for a half-hearted prayer here. He's not saying, hey, if you get a chance and you remember it and you're closing out your meal or you're about to hop in bed, just toss one up for me. He's saying strive together, strain, agonize in prayer. This is the same word used to describe Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when he sweats blood in prayer. Luke twenty-two forty-four, and being in agony. That's the word agonizomai, striving. He prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Paul is saying, I need that kind of prayer for my missionary journeys. Will you do that with me? That's what he's pleading for. Roman Christians, would you please go to war alongside me in prayer? What he's asking him for in verse 31, that I may be delivered. Here's the requests that I may be delivered from unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. His first two requests here, the first one, that I may be delivered from unbelievers in Judea. He knew there would be hostility in Jerusalem, but he was going to go anyways. So he said, hey, would you protect me? They had already tried to kill him once in Jerusalem in his lifetime, Acts 9, 28 through 29. So he went in And out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord, and he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. Paul knows what people in Jerusalem think about him, and this prayer request is not going to be granted to Paul in the way which he wanted. In Acts 21, he gets to Jerusalem, but then they immediately spot him, the opponents, the unbelievers in Judea, And then they say, oh, looks like he's with a Gentile and he's near enough to the temple. I bet he took that Gentile inside the wall where Gentiles aren't allowed to go. So they mob him, they beat him. Then a proconsul comes over and then just arrests him without any question. And then he goes through this trial process and he gets arrested in Jerusalem. His request was not granted in the way that Paul wanted. But nevertheless, in Paul's limited sight, He thought it would be best if he wasn't arrested by the Jews, but in God's unlimited wisdom, he knew it would be best for Paul to be arrested by the Jews. He was delivered from death, but not from imprisonment. His second request, 
that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. He wants the saints, the Christians in Jerusalem, to accept the gift that he's bringing. He's asking for that, for one, that it'll meet their needs. And the gift is already collected. And he's praying. This is how much of the sovereignty of God Paul's eyes have in them, is that it's already here, and their needs are already what they are. Be praying that it meets their needs. What's he asking for there? Miraculous intervention by God, that the needs will either go down or the money will go up and it'll meet it. But also, he's asking that they would receive it. Because they're in Jerusalem, constantly fighting their worldliness of being polluted against all Gentiles, because they're the, they're the goyim, they're the dogs, they're the nations. Don't mess with them. So they're having to fight that, and maybe this will be a sense of a peace offering. Hey, the Gentile believers, they love you, they care about you, they want to support you and be there with you through all of this. That it might bring fellowship in and amongst the church, much what Paul's after in writing the book of Ephesians. And then his final request is in verse 32. So that by God's will, I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. His third request would be that he would make it to Rome. He truly did want to be in their company. He truly did want to be with them. He knew it would be a good thing for both them and for him, but he knew it would only be joyful. It would only be refreshing if he was there by the will of God and not because he muscled his way into getting there because he just wanted some rest. So his request was that he would be able to come and that in the way, the timing that he comes would be blessed by God. And then in verse 33, he concludes it with a prayer for them. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. He can't ask them to pray for him without him praying for them. He's got to do that. That's just the nature of his own heart. He refers to God as the Father of God, our Father of peace. It's one of his favorite titles for God. He says it in other places in Romans 16, 20, 2 Corinthians 13, 11, Philippians 4, 9, 1 Thessalonians 5, 23, 2 Thessalonians 3, 16. Loves calling God the name, the God of peace. And if you think about what he's been talking about this whole time is frontline missions stuff and then dangerous moments that there's trouble with the, with the Jews, that there's, that there's persecution here, that he's trying to get there. He's going to be crossing an ocean. It's volatile situations, difficult situations. And what does he call God? The God of peace. So everything may be spinning out of control around you. Everything may feel out of your hands around you, but God is a God of peace. And that's what he concludes the chapter with, that there is invincibility and unassailable stability with God. Your best laid plans may be broken to pieces. Your community of believers may get torn to ribbons. But the God of peace never moves and never changes. And he is always the God of peace. His immutability, meaning his unchangeableness, is impeccable and infinite. He cannot be assailed. Our hope is in the God of peace, not in the success of our life plans or our fellowship groups or our churches. It's in the God of peace. Now, after going through that passage, it may seem more informational than it is practical, that Paul's just kind of given some stuff, and that's great kind of history for us to understand what's going on with Spain and kind of what was going on at the time. That's interesting in a sense, but what does it mean for me? I think there's very practical implications from this passage. Think about the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was directly converted by Jesus Christ in person. Why, why are you, who are you, Lord, is what he says. He says, I am Jesus, the one you're persecuting. 
directly converted by Christ. Then he's taken out to Arabia for three years, according to Galatians, and educated one-on-one by Christ. The typical Master of Divinity degree for seminary takes three years, and you don't get one-on-one with Jesus during that time. I can attest to that. But Paul does. And then Paul has this moment that we read in 2 Corinthians where we don't know when it happens or what really was going on, but he gets taken up into third heaven, and he's not allowed to tell anybody what he saw. I can't speak of it at all. So that guy, I mean, what, what more super empower? That guy does miracles. God uses him to do miracles. That guy asks a church he's never been to, will you pray for me? Will you pray for me? Have you thought about the significant moments where prayer is interjected? Like right here. Or when Jesus tells Peter, he says, hey, Peter, Satan has desired to sift you like wheat. And Peter goes, oh, good. You stopped him, right? And Jesus goes, I prayed for you. I prayed for you. I didn't stop him. I prayed for you. This interjection of prayer is so colossally significant. And if Paul needs prayer, I need prayer. Charles Spurgeon wrote once, he said, I confess to you all that although although God has greatly blessed me in his work, none of the credit is due to me at all, but to those dear friends at the tabernacle. That was his church, the Metropolitan Tabernacle. And indeed, all over the world who make me the special subject of their prayers. He said, I get none of the credit for any of this. Even though his sermons are being printed by the millions all over the world and put it in newspapers, he says, it's, it's the people praying for me. Same mindset as the Apostle Paul. Same mindset as Jesus Christ. So if they need prayer, can I ask you openly, would you pray for me? I'm just a dumb left-handed jock from Waco, Texas. Would you pray for me? Would you pray for our elders? We are fully convinced as elders that we are going to be judged more strictly by God. James 3.1 says that explicitly. Let not many of you become teachers, my brothers, knowing that as such you will incur a stricter judgment. We wake up every day with the somber realization of what our judgment is going to be like, having stepped into that role. Would you pray for us? Would you pray for our staff? We have people doing all kinds of things. Do you know the weight on Bill Berman's shoulders and Judy Morgans and Denise Barris as they seek to financially keep us safe and above reproach? Would you pray for them? Have you seen the sheer volume of tasks that comes across Nancy Stripling's desk? It would make you cry. Would you pray for Nancy? Would you pray for Ben and Jen as they seek to minister to the teenagers in our church, doing it with their full time? And in a culture that is preying on our teenagers more than any culture ever before? Would you pray for Danielle and Ashley and Kristen as they seek to labor to ensure the safety and the biblical vibrancy of the experience of our children in this church? Can I go as far as Paul in appealing to you and urging you to pray for us and to reconsider how much time you have been giving in prayer to us. Paul uses the word strive, agonize in prayer. Would you do that for us? Because if you don't, no one will. The world does not care whether we succeed or fail and would perhaps like to see us fail as those who give themselves full-time to ministry. 
And Satan is actively trying to destroy us. We know that. The devil is crouching like a roaring lion prowling around the earth to devour somebody. We know that to be true for us. But your prayers can be used of God to carry us through another week as we seek to do nothing but glorify his son Jesus Christ by making mature disciples to reach the nations. Pray for us. Let me pray for us now. Thanks for listening. To find out more, visit us online at tomballbible.church.